Hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of Small Biz Gone Viral. I'm your host, Grant LeBeau, small business owner and guy waiting with bated breath for a Pelosi-McConnell compromise and agreement to provide a second round of assistance to American small businesses. The goal of each show is to tell the stories of small business owners and highlight the specific, real-world impacts of COVID-19 on those owners and their businesses. This is a place for entrepreneurs to share their struggles and hear they are not alone, or, as Willow Hill from episode 18 called it, founder therapy. Before we get started, three quick things. One, as with every episode, there is a bonus round of three questions at the very, very end of the episode, so stick around even past the credits. Number two, if you know a small business owner, please share this podcast with them and share them with me to give an unsponsored shout out to them. Send through the contact page at smallbizgoneviral.com or email smallbizgoneviral at gmail.com. And last but not least, number three, try to do something nice for a small business owner today. That could mean buying something online, but you don't have to spend anything to show your support. Like and comment their last 10 Instagram posts. Post a positive review on Amazon or Yelp. Or just send them a message of support. Trust me, these little things go a long way. Okay. Time for our fun fact. Yay! According to Yelp, nearly 6,500 new restaurants and food businesses opened last month alone. New openings are nearing or outpacing levels from the last four years, and I'm guessing and hoping that this is a new wave of businesses built to survive and thrive through COVID and beyond. On to our COVID and economic summary segment, facts and figures. Public health experts have been warning since early on in the pandemic that the colder months late in the year would lead to an inevitable increase in COVID cases. Now that those colder months are starting to arrive and people are forced to spend more time indoors, these predictions are sadly turning true. The European Union saw cases rise 200% in the last month alone, from 40,000 to 120,000 new daily cases. The U.S. is not seeing quite that level of increase, but October 23rd did see a record 83,000 new cases diagnosed, and more people are hospitalized currently with coronavirus than at any time since April. But don't tell the economy. Maybe it's pandemic fatigue, but according to the stock market, things are almost back to their pre-COVID levels. Even with the surge, the stock market indices, the Dow Jones and S&P, have been relatively flat the last month or so. It's a little weird considering three-quarters of a million people lose their job every week, a second federal support package seems doomed to fail, and oh, by the way, winter is coming. There's also speculation that our national unemployment rate, which is currently about double its pre-COVID level, is actually inflated by people planning on returning to their pre-COVID jobs and therefore not eagerly pursuing new career opportunities. Interesting theory. My guest today is Jacob Foss, co-founder of AgriCycle, the umbrella company that seems to be rolling out a new brand every time I talk to him. AgriCycle creates better-for-you, better-for-the-world products like dried heirloom fruits from Africa and charcoal made from coconut husks, always sourced from their network of over 35,000 and growing smallholders from around the world. Prior to AgriCycle, Jacob served in the Peace Corps as an agricultural extension officer in Ghana, where he helped create local businesses focused on value addition, governmentally recognizing farming groups, and community education and wellness campaigns. 
He followed his service by creating a grain distribution business with his community aimed at providing steady income for isolated farmers in northern Ghana, as well as reliable food sources for schools. Jacob, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I am really excited to have you on today because uh, you are taking a really interesting capitalist approach to basically solving a bunch of the world's big problems. I think most sane people are in agreement that the world is not a fair, equitable, or just place, and that climate change is a very serious uh, human-caused problem. You are using capitalism to help address all of those issues. Uh, so before we dive too far into the effects of COVID, let's go ahead and start with just the very basics here. Uh, what is AgriCycle? Yeah, so AgriCycle connects farmers in emerging economies to global markets in the uh, capitalistic approach you mentioned, market-based solution, uh, through our vertically integrated value chain and global network of about 35,000 of those farmers. So we have um, a portfolio of upcycled and ethically sourced brands that we sell to America and other markets. And we take kind of a reverse approach, taking that market that we've established and bringing it to the farmers to go along with the trainings. So instead of you know training them to increase their production without having any source to sell it to, we make sure we have the market for them to sell to. And one of the biggest problems with rural economies is that they don't have marketplaces to sell their abundance of natural fruit. So we noticed the areas hit hardest with extreme poverty were some of the ones that also had the most abundant resources. They just didn't have outlets to capitalize off of them. So lack of preservation, lack of technology, lack of markets. And so that's kind of those three things are what we bring to the table for these farmers and take them from a, this isolated economy to a global marketplace. And we do so through trainings and then through buying and selling, completing the supply chain. And so our brands, we can get into the brands later, but we have a multitude of different brands that hit from social and economical aspects. And then we have the environmental focused ones, like our upcycled charcoal um, that combats deforestation instead of slashing and burning trees you take fruit waste shells of coconut shells and then uh, with our dried fruit we can deliver seven times local wage to the rural farmers um, mainly women to set the tone for uh, gender equality and kind of flipping the script there of who has the opportunity and then we have a couple other brands as well that, that hit on different targets okay so that was that was a lot of information there <laughs> Uh, let's go ahead and boil that down just real succinctly. Essentially, you are take you are providing uh, you're you're almost kind of a a market maker for these uh, business opportunities in Africa who otherwise would not have access to uh, to the to the final U.S. market, and you're doing so in a way that is bringing that is significantly raising daily wages in those areas, uh, as well as doing things in a very environmentally friendly way right in, in very short we, we bridge the opportunity gap um creating value from fruit waste got it uh i know that i i had a woman on the show uh, amazing guest caroline cotto of renewal mill who is the the president mm -hmm. uh the inaugural president of the of the upcycled uh food association mm. association there we go uh and so yeah she and one of the things that we talked about was how 
if food waste were a country, it would be the third biggest producer of greenhouse gases. So it's China, the U.S., entire like the entire countries, and then global food waste. So if we can eliminate food waste, uh, we can make a, a huge dent into uh, human-generated uh, greenhouse emissions. I, every year, there's 2.8 trillion pounds of, fr- of food that goes to waste. So you just think of the emissions there and then also the economic opportunity that's just missed. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, he, humans are bad with really, really big numbers and 2.8 yeah. trillion pounds of food. I, I don't even know, like, you know, uh, how many, how many stadiums I was of just gonna food say, is that, you know, like how, how many graphic. Yeah. How many tankers of, of, you know, what is that? Like a, a million tankers, like, right. yeah. Or a million Titanics. Yeah. That's just an astronomically high number. Okay. So yeah, I guess let's go ahead and maybe you can give me like a quick uh, synopsis of what your current products are, and then we'll go into your background. Great. So we'll start with uh, the one that launched earliest. We just launched this last March um, of 2020. So right at the start of COVID, that's the the Jolly Fruit Co. So that's our family of fun, sun-dried, upcycled natural fruit that the products we have right now are mango, pineapple, and jackfruit. And so we we take, that was the first, basically the creation of AgriCycle is just drying fruit and adding to the shelf life and the preservation and then adding more value to the fruit that just goes to waste. So for instance, in Northern Uganda, there's 50 mangoes sell for um, like 35 cents. So less than a cent per mango. And then we can buy those 50 mangoes for about 12 and a half dollars from the farmers who process it. So just a huge, it's like 35 times the value. And so it's not always that high, but that's what we're striving for is generating so much more value from basically this waste that either is sitting on the side of the road and rotting, um, just adding nothing to the economy. And so one of the things that we like with the Jolly Fruit Co. is that we have a QR code on the package that you can scan, and then it takes you to the cooperative and the women who process the fruit. So it kind of tells the whole story. So that's, that's what Jolly means. And um, yeah, go ahead. And I, I want to jump in there and just say that I was able to try uh, one, only one of those, but it was uh, the most delicious dried fruit I've ever had. And I think there that it's, it's, it's like... Uh, you know, the disgusting Roma tomatoes that you find in fast food that are basically that like we're all used to calling a tomato mm-hmm. because it's bred to be to to grow quickly and efficiently and not need water and all these things. And you you are sourcing is the term heirloom? Um it just naturally there there's no artificial preservatives or it's not technically heirloom, but okay. there's nothing none of the sulfites or the added sugars that we're used to kind of they're, they're found in flavor. nature and actually doing well yeah, on their exactly. own and they're like yeah. just these incredibly delicious fruits so okay so that, that's business number one is jolly yep. and that's yep. j-a-l-i correct okay yep. and then we have our sustainable charcoal which is called tropical ignition and we source that out of shells that typically go to waste of coconut and palm kernel shells and then a cassava starch that's just a remnants of boiling off cassava and so that's another waste product that normally just gets tossed on the ground. So all these things, all of our brands is just a waste that we upcycle into a value-added product. And so that is mainly targeted at combating deforestation, removing methane and 
emissions from the fruit that's rotting on the side of the road. And then we create a charcoal that actually burns hotter and lasts longer than, than its competitors in the market. So you have, tr- so you have, uh, so you have Jolly, you have Tropic Coal, great name, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. And then um, the, and then the third company, the ca- cassava flower. Um, so yeah, then we have a, a line of gluten-free flowers that can be taken from say the mango pit. So we try to upcycle the same fruit into many different products. So like the mango pit is a fiber rich flower that you can mill. And so we take the fruit for Jolly Fruitco, the pit for um, the flower brand, and that's mainly just ingredient supply or white label. And then um, you can do that with a number of different fruits. So like the coconut, same thing. You can mill that into a flower as well. So we're trying to upcycle the same fruit into multiple different products to add even more value to the farmers and reduce waste even further. Got it. And as far as the the white labeling or the the the, the gluten free flowers that you're offering, mm-hmm. are those on the market right now, or is that something that's coming down the pipe? Yeah, we can we can supply those. It's mainly B two B. Okay. So we we do have breadfruit flower on Amazon um, currently. It's called What the Fruit is that that brand on on Amazon. And so the majority of our supply would be B2B though. So coffee, fruit, pineapple, mango, um, coconut. There's a whole bunch of different ones you can make. And that, thank you for the reminder there. I did have some listener input here that they were, uh, they said we, we, we use too many acronyms. So uh, B2B is business to business. So basically you are supplying directly to a business so that they can then use that flower. And that would be a great way as an emerging brand to make a huge, if you're make a huge impact uh, by basically tying yourself to a much larger company's um, production model. Uh, B to C would be, or usually D to C, yeah, D to C is direct to consumer. Um, yeah. So thank you for that reminder. Yeah. Good call. Okay. So you basically have three brands under the umbrella of AgriCycle and each of those brands has there is, is if you didn't know any better, are, we are completely, are three completely separate brands all with their own websites, own marketing, et cetera. Your company was, it's only been around for. Yeah, we've only yeah. launched in the market since, since March, this spring, basically. It's been in the makings for years, but um, publicly, it's mm-hmm. only been around a few months. Right. And so the, the thing that has astounded me, and you and I have talked a couple of times and we actually met through my day job, I suppose, uh, mm-hmm. of the, you know, with, through my energy bar company. Um, what's been like, I don't know, overwhelmingly impressive to me is that it sounds like you have this portfolio of things like you are a venture firm or something and you have all of these different companies. Uh, but it's, it's, <laughs> you are not a huge company. It's yeah. you, it's your co-founder. You did just have your first raise though, which will be nice as you try to uh, springboard out of COVID and Absolutely. you know magnify your impact here. Uh, what was it like? What is your, I guess we'll, we'll start with your personal background, I guess, because I think that that is also extremely off the beaten path <laughs> as far as starting a couple of CPG companies. Um, <laughs> right. So what, what brought you to where you are today or, or what, what brought you to meeting your partner um, with your background and then starting 
this portfolio of companies. Right. Um, yeah. So brief, brief history on me. Um, grew up in Minnesota, went to school at UW-Madison, studied kinesiology. So I was thinking pre-med, the doctor route. Went uh, from there to Ghana in the Peace Corps to live in a, a very isolated rural village for two years. And that just kind of flipped global development on its head for me. Saw the world in a different light, saw what I wanted to do in a very different light as well. And so knew I had to be in the development space, probably from the grassroots up. And so from there, um, you know, tons of different experiences in my community and in Ghana. But then after that, I went to supply chain development, connecting farmers who wouldn't have the opportunity typically around sub-Saharan Africa to uh, one of the largest wholesale um, suppliers of specialty ingredients in America. So just connecting value chains, basically. And then from that, um, Josh, our, our founder, was needing someone who could connect global markets to, or global suppliers to markets and create that supply chain linkage. So it was perfect um, need and skill or ability to um, something that I really wanted to do. And I didn't even know I wanted to do this, get into CPG. I never would have thought, um, I thought it was just going to be development, but you know, opportunities present themselves and I've loved it. Yeah. And I feel like by getting into CPG, uh, consumer packaged goods. So basically a, a tangible item that is, you know, yeah, a, a, just a, t a tangible item that is sold to uh, to con consumers. So I feel like that market is actually allowing you to significantly magnify the impact that you wanted to have. Is that a fair statement? Exactly, exactly. And and touching on the ingredient supply too, you know, some people might think, oh, you just want to grow your brand out and have that be consumer facing, but the whole point of our company is to eradicate extreme poverty and the more we can buy from the farmers the the more we accomplish that so we can buy a lot more from farmers when it's you know multi-ton orders to a different company that the b2b aspect those ingredient supply even though the margins are smaller the impact is going to be bigger because there's just more of it that we're buying and more money we're injecting into the local economy right i mean that that's like the the very basics of B2B is if you're mm -hmm. comparing it to selling direct to consumer, you can sell a thousand, uh, you know, $3 items, $4 item, $5, whatever on Amazon. Okay, great. You just, you, you sold, you did a thousand sales and you made a thousand dollars. Well, you mm -hmm. do one sale B2B and you're making 20,000, 30,000, right. whatever, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. Right. Uh, orders of magnitude larger and, Exactly. In theory, it's much. It's actually much less work because you're. It's probably a, a an email, a, a few emails, basically arranging uh, delivery of that product rather than taking it into your own warehouse. And at least that's how it is right. for us. Right. Right. Um. So I touched a little bit on the uh, the fact that you guys have raised money, which I think is. Uh, really interesting specifically because you kind of have, you have a double bottom line, right? You are, you are not Walmart trying to extract every last dollar for shareholders. Your goal is to eradicate extreme poverty um, through actions in the marketplace. Was it difficult to raise money uh with people knowing that like your goal is not to maximize their profits. Yeah, it's, you have to 
pick and choose your investors definitely and just as they're picking and choosing you so we it was a lot of vetting who is going to be um, but you can't just get a big vc that the venture capital fund that's going solely with returns like we, we were able to generate returns down the line but the the main purpose or value that the investors are going to align with going to get their money back yes and make some but they're wanting to make a difference in the world too so it's people that put almost equal footing i would say rather than one valuing over the other of their returns versus the impact and so with that in mind then you go pursuing different investors having conversations and then once the doors open it's almost one leads to another and then people can maybe recommend other impact investors is more the term that we use social impact social or environmental impact investors that are actually much more common than that i realized starting off yeah and i also want to clarify that it it's not a black and white world it's not you are because you are not trying to maximize profits that therefore you cannot be profitable in and i was actually having this conversation with someone just the other day about how being pretty good at a lot of things on the market or, or having your, your product be pretty good at a lot of things is basically useless. You want it to be the best at, a, at at least one thing. And that's what will help make it jump off, off the, off the shelf. And I feel like because, um, because your product is doing is like so obvious doing, doing such obvious good for the world that, because wrapped up into the value proposition to the customer is they are doing something meaningful and impactful for the world by purchasing that it's all that you're almost you're you're increasing the 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 appeal to the consumer uh that is outsizing the maybe detriment of of a slightly higher price if if does that make sense yeah, exactly. Like, and that's the balance. Uh, yeah. So I guess like you, you're, you're creating a demand because people are, are able to vote with their dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, and one last thing about the, the venture raise you did, what was interesting to me is, is how the, the, the scale at which you were able to raise is really impressive given the, the stage in life that your company is, right? Right. Being, yeah, it was at the time we completed the raise, we hadn't been a market in a large sense. We had like a Kickstarter and we had, uh, you know, mini sales here and there, but we weren't launched officially. Um, it was basically pre, it was pre-revenue um, that we were able to raise, raise our round. And um, I mean, the money is, is public, but it was 1.4 million. It's, it's on the public domain. So it's fine to disclose that. But yeah, it was a okay, great, I wasn't sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is uh, great to be able to raise that to get us going pre-revenue. It was pretty, it was wonderful. Right. So basically, b before you had really sold much of anything, you were able to sell uh, investors on the vision of how, of how, just how big this company could be. Right. Uh, I feel like I could, I could uh, just sit here and, and praise your various ventures <laughs> for the full hour here, but we, we do need to move on. <laughs> um, so before we do, uh, before we, we get to the, actually how COVID has impacted you, um, let's go ahead and very briefly talk about what your expectations were for 2020 prior to COVID. So as of, as of January, February 2020, uh, what were you looking forward to? What were you expecting out of 2020? 
Right, right. So without getting too into numbers, we were expecting a few more larger accounts than what we were able to land due to due to COVID. We we started with a direct store delivery model, um, just going to stores with a sales team. And then obviously with COVID, you can't do that. So I had to right. change everything to digital online reach outs and sales and so and we and just real was, quick when, when you say direct to store does that mean that you were looking to circumvent just dis, dis, uh distributors yeah basically we had a we had a team who from our warehouse would go around selling different products so they already had the sales entry and then they also used that foot in the door to then say hey we also have this product that we think you would really like um convenience stores groceries around the country okay and then so yeah, without uh, we had to change our strategy there, which was fine, and we just put more efforts on the digital side, and and you know obviously launching in the time of COVID is not ideal, but with food with a shelf stable food product, it could have been worse. Um, so we just had to reroute strategy. It was much less, it was less sales than we had hoped for, had projected, but it was fine. We're still making we landed a good account and have a bunch of smaller ones so we're making traction um just slower as per everyone so it was to be expected and then one brand was just operating out of liberia completely stonewalled because of customs import export was just shut down for months at a time we were luckily enough to be able to get our fruit out of east africa to continue supply and And was that tropical tropical was the one in liberia that was shut down yeah so we okay. had higher expectations there, but that was just, that was completely out of our hands. Luckily, we were able to maneuver our Jolly Fruco out of East Africa to continue sales there. So a couple of things there. One, anyone who is was trying to launch a brand or even just extend their brand's reach in in COVID has, it's like banging your head against a wall these days because because of how conservative buyers are. Uh, so we are in contact with the pe- with the good people at Costco who are actually great to work with or or have been on on our end. And what they what they have been telling me is basically the sales for comfort foods have never been higher. So you're mm-hmm. you're basically your Nabisco and your Nestle products, your your Cheez-Its and your ding dongs and like people are are sad and like regressing back to their you know, right. uh, Cold War era foods, essentially. It's like, I'm sure spam sales have gone through the roof. Right. And what that means for brands like yours and mine is that it's really difficult to get a foot in the door because people just don't want to try new things. They're really conservative. So uh, I can imagine launching three brands is going to be that much more difficult. So uh, basically leading into 2020, you were expecting to have all three brands kind of up and running, uh, firing on all, on all cylinders. And probably as you were going, doing the, the actual set, going through the actual sales processes itself, being able to say, hey, if you like this brand, you will probably also like this brand, which is under our umbrella and being a little bit more efficient there in the sales process. Right, right. We we were fo- going to focus mainly on Jolly with a close secondary being tropical and then the the what the fruit, the flower brand would be a, a distant third. Always kind of thinking that'd be more so the 
ingredient supply that we were mentioning. Right. So yeah, with, we weren't even going to directly say, Hey, here's our brand. Go check out this other one. We would through AgriCycle once we launched that brand, the the parent company, but we were going to keep them separate thinking that would be able to then tie back to AgriCycle, which could connect the two. So it was, it was an interesting kind of launch, but yeah, definitely wanted to have those fully established and we had Jolly was fully established going well and tropical. We actually launched our Kickstarter. I mean, in real time last week, two weeks ago, but right. it'll be over by uh, the publication of this, which is totally fine. But yeah, yep. so hopefully that will have gone well once uh, <laughs> everyone's listening to this. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I, I, I just had a, uh, <laughs> a thought, which is you, you were, you are like the, uh, the, 2005 version of elon musk in, in that you you have a, a a high valuation on an unproven product that uh the argument could be made that you are maybe overreaching with with or, or uh your your grasp is exceeding your reach nope right. reach is exceeding. yeah uh yeah <laughs> yeah in in that you know your your eyes are bigger than your stomach right and you're yeah. trying to do a lot of things you're trying to you're trying to grow three brands all in the same time but you're doing it and at least from an outsider's perspective it seems like it's it's quite successful thus far given uh the the market conditions so anyway i meant that in a compliment a very complimentary way get up to anywhere near the numbers of elon right yeah now. if we can get <laughs> you'd be happy <laughs> we'd be all right with that yeah yeah <laughs> whatever that t- fine let's do that if uh if in the first few years of business if you're if you're worth more let's see he, i think tesla is now worth more than like ford and toyota and i don't know how many yeah. other companies combined so the, yeah exactly so if in th- so if, if three years from now when we're doing like our <laughs> third follow-up episode if you're bigger than like nestle and nabisco and pepsi yeah. all combined We'll come back to this. Yeah, we'll come he back to right. this. I'm like, I, he knew I it. called it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. So I feel comfortable moving on to our mid-COVID segment. But before we do that, as always, it's time for our guest's unsponsor of the show, which is your opportunity to give a shout out to a small business who is an awesome company, uh, producing an awesome product, run by awesome people. So Jacob, who is today's show not brought to us by? So today's show is not brought to us by Vera, V-E-E-R-A-H. They are an upcycled apple skin leather clothing company. So they use apples and take the wasted byproducts, upcycle them to leather and create shoes in a luxury fashion line. So they're based in New York and there's actually a good amount of companies that are upcycling apple skin around the world into shoes. So it's very cool to see. So this uh, show is not sponsored by Vera. Love it. And you can find them at on Instagram at, at VeraOfficial or Vera.com. Okay, time to move into the era of COVID. So you launched in March and what a time to be alive. What a time. And yeah, and what a time to launch a company. So uh, what were the first first impacts you felt from covid the first was what's going to happen to our global supply chain Th- people can't travel how our products going to travel what's that going to look like 
Uh, as we briefly mentioned, Tropical in Liberia, that was the biggest impact, trying to maneuver that for a couple of weeks to a month and then realizing there's just there's no company going in or out. There's there's no containers moving. So we then had to focus on less of our cash flow going to produce the product there. So that was fine, just reallocated resources. And then on the other production side with with Jolly in East Africa, we were able to establish enough relationships with um, the customs and export officials and having it be a very nutritious product, a shelf-stable nutritious product. They're like, yeah, you have to get this to America. The, the consumers need this for uh, the COVID. It's going to save them. Like, yeah, so you're exactly. actually interacting with like like specific individual customs uh, yeah. officials who are like, right. oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Our team on the ground over there is very savvy and wow. uh, has great relationships. That, so that it seems was, like something really that would never happen in the U.S. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. like, oh, I got this great guy at the IRS. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah fabulous guy he'll get yeah. you what you need <laughs> um so yeah on the supply side that was basically the, the approach uh just switching over to jolly since we were able to and then on the sales side i mentioned that the direct store delivery was no longer a thing and much more um e-commerce platform so trying to get into natural marketplaces um imperfect foods was was one account they were very happy to get into they they take upcycled food basically and sell on their platform so that was great and just trying to find different accounts like that was imperfect the the big account you were alluding to earlier yes 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 so that that was really nice to be able to get they're a wonderful company and so that was just kind of the approach we had to swivel to yeah do you feel like and this is we're already moving to the glass half full here but it's been somewhat of a recurring theme on the show. Do you feel like COVID has provided you with an opportunity to focus and maybe grow aspects of your company that will continue to be strong, be stronger because you've been able to focus on them, i.e. digital and direct to consumer via online sales? Right. We really had to to focus in and say, what are we able to spend our resources on? What's what do we want to at the core make strong for to set the foundation to grow? And yeah, absolutely. We were able to narrow down to a couple different routes on the e-commerce site, um, the e-commerce stage and just pursue as many different, to kind of narrow in on the natural um, e-commerce platform sellers, as well as finding connections to other startups that, we're having similar problems and it's kind of, there's a lot of different startup communities that you can speak with that have good connections. So I don't know if um, people were, if there wasn't as much of a barrier due to COVID, if those connections would have been as strong, maybe, but I feel like it was just more a necessity to help each other out, to reach out to others. I think that would be the biggest thing. More people are reaching out to each other, which formed a stronger community. And then that was just nice to be a part of. Yeah, you just took the word right out, of, right out of my mouth. I feel like COVID, if if nothing else, has created at least one good thing in that yeah. because we are all in this together, there is a little bit more of a communal feel. Right. If there's a delay in your supply chain, if, it, if a delivery date has to be pushed back, people understand where you're coming from because it's not like, oh, sorry, there was phantom traffic. It's like, right. uh, sorry, there was a global pandemic. Not <laughs> yeah. sure if you heard, if you got the memo and everyone, like just everyone's on board with that. Yeah. Right. So was there, you seem very even keel, but 
were there any were, were there moments of doubt as you're trying to launch these brands in as a pandemic seems every day to be getting worse and worse uh was there were were there moments of like is this is not going to be able to happen or was it always just okay we'll just this door is shutting and we'll just move okay let's go open this door now right before uh the final shutting or opening of the doors there was the oh my goodness what are we going to do we've got to solve this right like we shutting the door was not an option. We didn't want to let that be an option. So it was just kind of maybe not scrambling, but pulling at all strings. How can we make this work? And um, we, we move very quickly in our company. And so we, we do not, we don't ever want something to be slowed down and just like anyone else. So once we came to grips with, okay, we've exhausted all options. Like the worst thing would be if we don't see an opportunity through when it was under our control, if it's an outside factor that we couldn't have done literally anything else about, we can come to grips with that, move on, we'll pivot and we'll make it work. But we just wanted to make sure there was nothing we were missing, which I don't think we were. I mean, when a country shut down, what, what can you do there? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, if it, it seems, it seems like you made every pivot that you could, I mean, you were yeah, befriending customs officials and you were just, <laughs> yeah. and, and it seemed like you kind of just uh, off the cut, like you, you just threw it out there really quickly and then just moved right on moved right along but you said that there that you had to move production from liberia to somewhere where where did you move it to so east africa is where we moved the focus to move the focus to okay mm -hmm. uh mm -hmm. and did you change where you were actually like where you were producing or i guess you're not producing but where you were uh drawing your supply from yeah, we so to your point, we with Tropical, it was only in Liberia. And exactly as you're saying, we started having our team look for sources in East Africa, started some of the training. Um, in addition to only focusing on the dried fruit, let's look for you know, coconut shells to turn into charcoal, things like that. And, and Tanzania ended up being the country of choice. They have 4% of the world's charcoal production and they're Tanzania. They, the population to charcoal production, those proportions are just incredible. So we would much rather have a sustainable charcoal there. So we want to sell locally instead of them slashing and burning their entire forest and then growing trees to get more forest to burn and, sla and yeah. slash and burn down. So that was a, a production shift that we did make, yes, and we're, we're currently making. Okay. So, and, and Tropical was originally slated to have, to launch when? This summer. We were hoping for, we are hoping to get like the summer grilling. So spring to summertime would have been ideal. And we, we had, uh, the production side was not the um, limiting factor, but the export side was. But it Got gave it. us to go back to the glass half full. It gave us time to really hone in on product development rather than trying to meet the demand, rush into market. We were able to mix with the formula to get a, a quicker ignite time, longer burn, hotter temperatures, things like that. We were able to focus and spend more time on fine tuning, which, which is always helpful. We would have done it anyway, but it made us be able to shift 100% of our efforts basically. Right to that on the production side. Yeah, I, I feel like the the summer grilling season is the is the Super Bowl of the charcoal world. It's the the yes. peak of the, of the sale cycle for the year, right? I mean, the Fourth of July is probably like 
where I don't exactly. know, 20% of our, of all charcoal for the whole year is probably sold somewhere around the, the, the 4th of July weekend. Usually. Right. We had, we had a big event, our headquarters are in Milwaukee and we had a big event with a lot of local partners at a big tailgate basically for the launch of tropical and a lot of Milwaukee and Wisconsin companies like Johnsonville Bratz, they, a bunch of different companies would have come together for this grill out. And so that was going to be very fun, but we'll just do it next summer, next spring. We'll just do it next summer. <laughs> no problem, right? <laughs> what a very classic. Yeah, very. Yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> no. Nope. And investors are probably happy about that. <laughs> yeah. ah, just wait another year. We'll no hold problem. everything off. Yeah, it'll be fine. Just wait a couple of years. Yeah. Um, okay. And before we move on to our post-COVID segment, I have one question about the um about the price point of tropical and and jolly so the price point and i I know the answer but how does the price point of tropical compare to your more traditional uh grill briskets and it is it is higher it's right yeah it is (laughs) (laughs) you can cook your briskets with right um maybe we'll that'll be the add-on on the website we uh it's definitely it's definitely higher it's needs to be higher for for the cost of goods for the impact we want to have and it's much more expensive than putting a lot of the ingredients that are used in traditional charcoal since we do have just three um, natural ingredients in there and the impact is such that we hope and believe that consumers are willing to pay for higher quality much more environmentally friendly product that it, it does you need less of it to achieve the same grill. So from economics, it's closer if you look at it in that regard, but overall it will be, um, it will be more expensive than your traditional charcoal you can find right next to it on the shelf. Right. So there does need to be a little bit of kind of an an educational aspect to it in that you don't need to stack them quite as wide or high in order to generate the same amount of heat. Right. You need, if you just, if you're using a chimney, right you need about a third of the the chimney so it's almost um it's significantly less coals that you need less mm-hmm. space that it takes up compared to traditional you can just dump on the whole grill you don't even worry about it because the bag is huge so it's it's um much more efficient of a burn right which yeah, will be you... different for grillers to get used to that because it'll seem like you don't have anything on the grill really but it'll it'll be fine it'll work yeah how do you come up with the the number that you want to pay to your suppliers? Because ordinarily, the market kind of dictates what you're doing, right? But a you're the like you're like the only buyer, or you you're like creating products essentially from whole cloth. No one else is doing this. So when you're going to someone and you can usually get fifty mangoes for thirty five cents, and now you're saying, hey, we want to get. We, no, no, no. We're going to give you twelve dollars, yeah, for that same amount. Right. You know why not? Why not give them six dollars or nine dollars? Like, how, what, what is what is the process like for coming up with the the multiple that you that you are actually paying? Definitely, and it's it's a lar- it's a combination of of many different things of of market price of purchasing of market price of what we can sell to a lot of research going on. But one of the main things that we do is just look at with all other expenses taken into account, 
what cost of goods can we make a healthy enough margin on to continue production to be pro- eventually be profitable and and meet the uh, market demands that we want to see and the income that we want to see and then using that how can we take that to almost to that level of instead of just maximizing that at all cost of taking that to a healthy amount but then minimizing it in the sense that we can then maximize what we can pay the farmers and at first it was a balance between speaking a whole lot of open conversations with the farmers of what would you guys be comfortable seeing what would you guys be ecstatic seeing and what would be in between what would be just like your whole range and then that helped us narrow in on the local side and we went more so to the ecstatic end instead of just the minimum like yeah we could probably live on this but we wanted them live comfortably and have them be motivated to upcycle the fruit because then there's also the environmental component too and then it's going to be more sustainable that if the supplier is happy with you, they're going to want to stick with you and um, supply, keep doing what they're doing and then meet your demand. So it was a mix of kind of bridging both. And instead of ignoring the supply side and just saying, Oh, well, we'll just maximize our side. It was basically meeting in the middle. Interesting. Going to the seller, the, who in this case is the farmer and asking them for their input on how much they would like to be paid. I feel like it's such a novel concept. (laughs) Yeah. You don't see that much. That's one of the things that we do is we take so much time to develop those relationships and the trust, which is rarely seen in the development world. And you can, you can say we're, we're in the development world, even though we're a um, profitable company, Uh, social enterprise is what we are. So kind of bridging the gap. Yeah. And is there, is there any worry that you are, let's see, the impact that you are having in these communities can be so, so large that if you, is there like a worry of you being kind of the, the only show in town the that like those communities become reliant on does that make sense yeah we we try to avoid dependency as much as possible that's that's one of the things that is so detrimental in the the development space global development space so we there are other players in purchasing dried fruit there we don't by any means say in our contracts we send that you have to once you start selling to us, you have to only sell to us. If they want to go sell to someone else, if they want to make local sales, if they can find a venture themselves to generate income and be self-sustaining, that's the goal. Because we're, we're able to train more people, bring more people into our network and just kind of move on. So if we could form a model of we train you, bring you up to this level, you're producing and selling this quality product, then you find your own way and kind of not graduate, but find a different way to generate income. And then we move on and do that with more and more and more cooperatives. That's, that's the whole goal. So that's what we're looking for, trying to decrease dependency as much as possible. But at the same time, we also come from the market approach. So we should have the demand for them at all times and not, they're not just waiting around twiddling their thumbs saying, when are you guys going to buy from us next? So it's kind of a combination of the two. Right. And that that's kind of what I was trying to get at a little mm-hmm. bit more because mm-hmm. I don't think that if you are paying 10 or 20 or 30 times more than they were able to get beforehand, I don't think they're, you're really going to have to worry about them going to find 
lots of other people who are also willing to pay way above market rate. Mm -hmm. and, and more so commonly, it is they would find someone or someone would find them to sell the raw ingredient, the whole fruit too, because the process prices were going to pay more, but they would be able to, sometimes it's just a term, a method of thought of, well, I can sell this, so I should sell this rather than could I wait and sell this for a higher amount? Like if we took the time to process, that's more work on my end, but look at the returns versus there's this buyer here who will pay X for the fruit. That's a quarter of what I could get by selling if I took one step to process it more, but it's right here in front of me. I want to make the sale. So that would be a more um, common result instead of taking the time to process it and sell it to someone else. Got it. Okay. Uh, with that, I think it's, we're ready to move on to our post COVID segment, which as I originally created it, I thought that post COVID was going to be a thing that was going to happen. I don't know, in our lifetimes, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it just feels that way. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know when COVID is actually going to end. So we've kind of evolved this segment into be more what are the the lessons learned and the adjustments made coming out of covid um what are the what are the the upsides i suppose if they're if you want to frame it as such um basically coming out of covid so with that uh what are what what's kind of what's next for your portfolio of companies and um how are you adjusting what is next based off of COVID? Right. So with the focus on just digital, that has, is going to stay somewhat similar to that, just really pushing out that model. We're going to push more so for the grocery side. We will return slightly to a much scaled down version of the direct store delivery, making that in-person contact, trying to set up, you know, more in-person sales, hopefully deals and closes rather than just emails and then phone calls. But in terms of the model of, of who we're reaching out to, it's going to remain the same. We're, we're happy with who we're reaching out to. We will, now that we have Tropical being launched post COVID, that will just open up a different segment as well. It'll be more so of the same, but the biggest change will be trade shows because especially with a, a hardware good of tropical, that's a wonderful opportunity to get in front of a lot of buyers. And so we were trying to do some virtual trade shows that most didn't really work out, but there's um, once trade, once COVID post COVID, whenever that is, that's one of the biggest changes that we will do. And mostly it's just going to be similar. We've been able to reduce cost pretty well you're just staying in your room right and making calls and emails closing deals and doing it all virtually without traveling around so that's just, not bad just running a company valued at four and a half <laughs> something million dollars from from your bedroom no from big deal couch, yeah. yep go COVID <laughs> yeah so that in terms of strategy that's really gonna be the biggest change we'll be able to obviously launch the product um you mentioned what's different for the portfolio of brands. Um, we have the, we talked about briefly before, but the Lionfish brand. Um, oh, we I haven't can... even talked about that on this show yet. Yeah, not on the show. So I do want me to dive into that just briefly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool, cool. So uh, 
brief summary of lionfish. They're an invasive species off the coast of Latin America, South America, that are just detrimental to coral reefs because they prey on all of the little plankton that, that clean up the algae covering the reefs. So basically they are eliminating the toothbrush, you could say, for the if you think of like the algae as the enamel, your the um, toothbrush cleans up the enamel, your teeth are healthy. The lionfish remove the toothbrush so that the enamel just grows and the coral reef is covered with this uh, algae that doesn't let it have photosynthesis. So it can't grow. Basically, you lionfish enter the system, the coral reef dies. And so there's government initiatives to remove the lionfish, but they replicate at such a high rate, it's almost impossible to keep up. So trying to find a solution for that has been very difficult, but there's some things that you can add a market to one being that the meat, it's a very tasty fish and one being the fins, they're beautiful and can be turned into jewelry. So we're coming again with a market-based approach to add value to the fin, which is jewelry. So there'll be local artisans we employ to turn those into bracelets and necklaces. And then we're going to create the fish into jerky, um, which will be a incredibly nutritious lean different style of jerky that all ties into the impact story upcycling you can say waste is this invasive species into opportunity so that's a that's a brand that we are will be launching by 2021 as well we're in the works of it right now setting everything up so let's say it's it's the same time it's a, it's a year from today you want to have launched and had a sweet grill party with all of the, the <laughs> local Milwaukee companies. Right. Uh, you want to have hopefully be going to or be wrapping up a season of trade shows. Right. You want to have a fish jewelry jerky uh, <laughs> combo company line or, or is that going to be two separate companies? It'll be two. So it's it was a group that we spoke with who was trying to become a startup. So we have a different type. It's not our team that's going to spread ourselves out even further. It's another group that we've combined with, uh, brought them in under our company. And there'll be different brands. So there'll be one company basically that we acquired and then two brands separately, the fish, the jerky, and the, uh, the jewelry. I love that you've already acquired a company. <laughs> we joke about it all the time. How, what? How did that happen? Oh, man. Okay. And then uh, let's see, just, just wrapping up uh, your, your very reasonable hopes and expectations for 2021, <laughs> uh, Jolly Fruit will continue to, to, to grow. That, that one, I think, is like the most established and easy to explain. Right. It's, it's dried right. fruit from a sustainable source. Right. Then you will also have your B2B gluten-free flowers, your, your cassava flour, uh, and then there were a few other ones under that yeah. as well. Yeah. And am I missing anything? It's like hard to tropical, yeah. tropical, right? <laughs> you need a couple more hands here to count yeah, all these things. Seriously. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, I I'm always excited to have guests back on the show in you know six months or a year, and and to hear you know how things have adjusted. I'm excited to have you back on to hear like what 15 other companies you right. brought under your umbrella. <laughs> how many employees do you guys have right now? We have 26 globally. There's seven in america and then the rest are abroad and when they're are they uh what are, what, what are the people who are who are abroad doing yeah so we have 
besides Regional befriending threat. customs officials. <laughs> yeah. So 10 of them are just to be friendly. Now right. we have uh, our regional directors. So there's the director levels, the managerial levels, and then the field officials, basically. We call them community development officers, but those are, those are basically the groupings. And then just kind of like the directors are the CEOs, basically. And then you have you know, the, the accountants, the logistics, and the food safety as the managerial, and then the, the field staff. Wow. And in 2021, how do you, do you see a need to be hiring and expanding that workforce? Or do you feel like you're at a place right now where you can, you know, you can add a couple of zeros to your, to your top line revenue without necessarily adding uh, more employees? Yeah, we try to keep it on the, on the U S side. We try to keep it as slim as possible. Mm -hmm. We have in place, a few hires that we're looking for and on the global side we would like to hire a few more of the the field staff out to to grow our reach as the market demands increase we're going to need to increase our supply which directly correlates to the field staff being able to mobilize more cooperatives and train the ones we currently have as well and so that's what we're looking at we, we like the structure we have currently so it'll just be uh small tweaks and and small growth on on the staff side Got it. Well, I'm excited to see what what comes next for you guys. And uh, I'm definitely going to be purchasing some tropical. I already have some jolly fruit, but I'm uh, going to be doing more of that. And well, <laughs> I'll be purchasing a lot of that jolly fruit because you and I are working on a little collaboration, um, which as we wrap this show up and we talk about different ways that our listeners can support you, I suppose we can, we can toss that one in there. Um, Actually, you and I are working together on a couple of different projects. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. I can't even keep track. I can't keep track of all of your businesses. I can't keep track of all the ways that you and I are working together. Okay, there's so much going on. There's a lot going on here. Yeah, it's it's a it's a complicated world we live in. So, how can our listeners support you? Yeah, you can visit jollyfruit.co and purchase our dried fruit. Uh, we will have tropical ignition. J a l i. J a l i fruit.co that's also our instagram handle if you want to subscribe follow give us likes just check out what we're doing that'd be great that's at jolly fruit co j-a-l-i same thing with tropical ignition we will be launching um the product will be more so in the spring just because of no one's grilling in the winter and so next spring get ready to grill tropical ignition with the website's already up so you can follow what we're going what we have going on right now and then the instagram at tropical ignition and that's the best thing you can do to help us out subscribe to our newsletters check out our instagrams our social media and uh check out the website okay and real quick uh usually i don't, I don't get to be this self-serving but tell us about the project that, that you and i were emailing about yesterday yeah we also have <laughs> with our good friends at rickaroons we have a snack box a premium at home movie theater box for the holidays so we have a collection of brands that hit either impact heavy on the environment side social side or the health side um, anywhere from vegan to high protein to environmental sustainable and socially conscious brands that come together for a 
perfect movie snack pack that you can share with your family. You can buy it for friends for the holidays. You can take it for your family and loved ones and enjoy your movies. Uh, know you're, you're doing good for your body and for the world. Love it. Uh, <laughs> all right, Jacob, thanks so much for being on the show. Can't wait to have you back and, and see all of the amazing things that you're doing. Awesome. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Grant. A quick reminder to stick around for our bonus segment. But first, thank you to my guest, Jacob Foss of AgriCycle. You can see his ever-growing portfolio of Better For You and Better For The World brands at agricycle.com. Currently, they offer a delicious variety of dried fruit, charcoal made from coconut husks, and gluten-free flowers made from fruit. And of course, all are designed to help eradicate extreme rural poverty. Today's unsponsor is the Bad Day Box Company. The owner personally curates each box to basically be full of happiness-inducing items from women-owned, socially conscious, small-batch, and or eco-friendly brands. Basically, the exact companies you want to be supporting. These boxes are literally designed to make someone's day, so the next time you know someone who had a bad day, go to baddaybox.co, that's .co, and send them something fun. Check out smallbizgoneviral.com for all episodes and updates, and follow us on Instagram at smallbizgoneviral. Each week, we compile that week's key COVID stats, show off some sweet graphs, share our favorite quotes from each episode, and of course, link to our unsponsors. Thank you to Peggy Bunker and the Bunkmates for the music, Worldometer, NPR, Robinhood Snacks, Statista, and Morning Brew Daily News emails, and a big thank you to our amazing intern, Kaylin Kwan. Someday this will all be over, and that day might be just a little sooner if you wear a mask and socially distance. From an office in North Pacific Beach, recorded and edited before and after work hours, I'm Grant LeBeau, and this is Small Biz Gone Viral. And we're back with a quick bonus lightning round for quick questions for Jacob. Number one, what is your least favorite question about your business to receive at a party and why? Say, uh, what is it like in the country of Africa? And obviously it's not that bad. People typically don't think it's a country, but they think it's one place with no diversity. It's just what you hear on the media, the negativity. So I get that one all the time. Right. Like it's not a gigantic <laughs> continent. With hundreds of cultures, languages. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. Uh, what are some common misconceptions about your business? For this one, it kind of ties on the prior question. I could explain, you know, what we do and given the context of Africa, people sometimes don't even have follow-up questions of say, they'll just be like, oh, that's really interesting. Go support Africans or something very simple that doesn't extend the conversation really. Or they'll just say like, yeah, I like dried fruit or whatever it might be. But it's typically just kind of ends. Right. So basically the exact opposite of this interview. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Which, <laughs> as, as evidenced by uh, th this bonus round, it just won't end. Uh, I just have so many follow-up questions. I think it's like the most interesting business model I've ever come across. So, uh, and I am not even being hyperbolic. Okay. Uh, last two questions, as always. What is your least favorite part about being an entrepreneur? Say the, in a way, the limitlessness, uh, it's just never ending. There's always something to do. You always can feel guilty about, you know, not being in front of your computer, growing out the companies in some manner. 
Right. Or in your case, there's always another company to start. Another company. <laughs> Which company should we start today? And uh, follow-up question to, to that one, the flip side, what is your favorite part about being an entrepreneur? What's the, what are some of the biggest upsides? And I, I would also say the same thing uh, on the different side. I, I love not having limits and having things that you can always reach for, create new. There's no boundaries on what you can create or at least what ideas you can propose, whether you run with them or not. And that's just kind of fits my personality and what I love doing. And on that, Jacob, this time I mean it. Goodbye. You sure? Not right, sure. Good. This so time. <laughs> good, goodbye for now. <laughs> Thanks, Jacob. Yeah, take care.